Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm joined today by Joel Mowry. Joel is the Executive Director of the Mental Health and Recovery Board of Portage County. I'm also joined by Kelly Hart. Kelly is a recovering addict and has now two... Almost two years. Almost two years in recovery. Yeah. Well, welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Um, Joel, we'll start with you. We'd like to talk just a little bit about the Mental Health and Recovery Board and some of the services that you have to offer. Thank you, Greg. The Mental Health and Recovery Board, we're primarily a planning and funding and monitoring agency, and we contract with four agencies in Portage County. One of those is Town Hall 2, another is Coleman Professional Services, Family and Community Services, and finally Children's Advantage. And together they provide a pretty wide variety of services that deal with both mental health issues and addiction issues as well. And often those issues uh, occur together, so it's good to be addressing both of those at at the same time. If I could jump in there, you're well aware of how those issues occur together because of your background. So tell us a little bit about your background as a child psychologist. Well, that's primarily my training is uh, way back in the 70s, uh, getting licensed in Ohio in 1980. And primarily most of my work has been in direct service as well as supervising people, other psychologists. To, uh, to deal with children and families with mental health issues and addiction issues. So that's been most of my background up until about nine years ago when I came over to the board, and now I also wear an administrator hat to, to deal with uh, larger system issues, which includes uh, developing programs and figuring out ways to fund them. Yeah. So, But that background really is beneficial to you because in 90% of the cases, the roots of addiction began there in adolescence with some issue. Can you speak to that? Let's let's spend a minute talking about that. As you said, I believe over 90% of the people, when we talk about people developing addictions and you talk to them about their history, the majority of them really did start as teenagers uh, or even worse, even younger kids in, in grade schools and things like that. And uh, many times they started things with cigarettes and alcohol and other kinds of substances. So And unfortunately, we believe that the younger that you start, the more difficult it's going to be to to not develop an addiction because of the of the developing brain and the impact on uh, 
on a child growing up, what do these substances do? So, so the earlier we can intervene, the better. Yeah, there's a lot of studies now that are coming out that support exactly that. So let's just take a minute and talk about some of those warning signs and what's the risk if you don't address those issues early on? One of the big issues that I really want to focus on is trauma kinds of issues because we believe with children growing up, they face all kinds of traumas which can directly then lead into substance use disorders. Some of those traumas are very severe, as we talk about childhood abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. But others are things like bullying that occur that kids are facing, and nowadays with cyberbullying. And then they may be dealing with issues like divorce or uh, death of a family member. So all of these are traumatic events, and the more traumatic events that they have, that puts them at a higher risk for all kinds of issues, which includes substance use problems um, as well as physical health problems as well. So when you're dealing with somebody who may have developed a substance use disorder, we always assess for are there any kinds of traumas in their life? What's, what's going on either past or maybe current kinds of things? Because if we don't deal with those traumas, I believe we're not going to be able to deal with the substance use problems because those are the underlying core kinds of issues that may be uh, continuing their substance use disorders. They try to cope with what's going on, and we're trying to find better ways for them to deal with, uh, with their traumas. Kelly, I want to jump over to you now. Um, I, I see you kind of nodding your head in agreement there when you, as Joel talks along about trauma and what have you. Can you relate to any of the issues that he's sharing now as the beginning of uh, addiction for you and some sources? Um, I can a little bit um, as far as, I don't want to go as far as saying trauma, but um, growing up in an alcoholic home, um, it, it strongly affected uh, my childhood. Um, I don't blame the alcoholism of my father on my problems. However, I, I, I do still firmly believe that it affected uh, some of the choices that I made uh, early on. Um, you know, I enjoyed my relationship with my father, so I was with him often. And so I was around that environment quite a bit. Um, so that's, I mean, like Joel had already said, that's a little bit of where my addiction took off was in, in my early to late teens with alcohol. Okay. So you, you say you spent a lot of time with your father. Were your father and mother together? Yes. Okay. Okay. You just palled with him and went out and did things. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So tell us a, a little bit more about your story. You're a longtime Portage County resident. I am a longtime Portage County resident. I grew up in the Cleveland area. My alcoholism uh, started very early, you know, uh, as a teen, late teen. Um, and, you know, my, the, the issues just started right, right then. Um, it for some reason, I enjoyed the effect of alcohol. Um, I it took it led me into some other substances that uh, other people were doing, so I chose to do that as well. Um, I was in and out of addiction, you know, throughout the throughout the years into my adulthood, and uh, suffered many consequences because of it. So, um, where did you, what did you end up using? Um, I was in and out of the addiction for, for many years, uh, about 20 years altogether. 
Um, and the problem with it was is I didn't really understand the disease aspect of it. Uh, I, I knew what I was doing was wrong. However, I didn't understand how to stop. You know, once that obsession of the brain kicked in and the, the physical allergy kicked in, I, I didn't understand that aspect of it. Um, I later had a, suffered a serious injury, uh, a work injury, broke both of my feet, um, and was uh, then prescribed quite a bit of medication. And that there is where my disease really took off. Do you recall the medication you were prescribed? Oh, I was on several, Opana, Oxycontin, Fentanyl. Okay. Quite a few. Mm-hmm. And so how quickly did it take off? How quickly did that kind of... Almost immediately. It didn't take too long for there to be a physical dependence upon opiate medication. Um, if I didn't have it, have it, I suffered physically because of it. Um, so then I would seek to take more, you know, to get rid of those feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's where the addiction process really took off. So did your doctor ever cut you off then? He did. Um, what did you do then? They, they, they cut me off. Uh, I was needing more and more because of the physical dependency, mm-hmm. and they decided to just to take me off altogether, and um, which left me sick from not having the medication. Dope sick. Correct. Um, and just because of my history, knowing a little bit about uh, medication and addiction, I hit the streets for heroin. And that was helpful to the pain that I thought I was having and to get rid of the sickness that I was feeling. Wow. So how long did and you were shooting or snorting? It began with snorting and led into shooting, yes. Yeah. How long did you use then? Uh, three years for heroin. Okay. And so what made you reach out for help? Um... Well, many, many, many things uh, led me to reach out for help. First, it wasn't the person that I wanted to be. It wasn't the person that I am. Um, Heroin led me into places that I never thought I would be, Um, had me doing things I never thought I would do. Can you give us some examples? Do you care to share some? Um, Well, a lot of the lying uh, ended up stealing, you know, from family. Um, some criminal activity, uh, some you know criminal consequences. It's just not the person that I was, and it's not you know the person that I am. So uh, I re- reached out um, to many places in Portage County. Um, Compass Recovery being the first one. It's an outpatient facility. Um, I reached out to the Root House, uh, Portage County inpatient residence for ninety days. And was able to attend that. And they referred me to Town Hall 2 after that. And so, ultimately, you were very successful at Town Hall 2. Is that right? Uh, Not the first time around. The second time around, I was very successful. Okay. So, tell us about both. Tell us about the first time around. Well, the first time around, unfortunately, especially with heroin addiction, relapse is absolutely a part of recovery. Um, It's very sad to say, but it's true. Uh, it's very difficult to overcome, but the good thing is, is that every time I sought treatment into another facility, it planted a seed. It, I learned more about the disease. Um, it, more people became more involved uh, to help me. Um, my family got more involved. Friends got more involved. Uh, they just wanted to see me get well, and it helped. 
Outstanding. Are there some mile markers, I'll call it, whereby you know to be additionally cautious and additionally aware for the risk of relapse? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, my first attempt uh, to to overcoming the, the heroin addiction, I, I, it was something that I learned from. Um, I relapsed around nine months. Uh, and after attending Town Hall 2 and getting a little more education on the disease, I learned that for some reason in the, in the recovery process, three months, six months, nine months in that first year, those mile markers are very important in the recovery process. So the second time around, I remembered after learning those those things from Town Hall 2, when, when I got to three months, I surrounded myself with sober people, the sober environment, uh, got more involved in, into meetings so that I could prevent any of those types of things or thoughts to occur during those time frames. Medication-assisted treatment is something that is very, very popular today, um, utilizing methadone or suboxone. Did you get involved in that at all? I did attempt to uh, seek help. Um, I heard of the suboxone treatment being helpful. Um, however, for me, it was just a bad idea, um, being that I'm a, a drug addict and a doctor writes a prescription of a medication that can affect my brain the way I want it to affect my brain. It's, it's a bad idea for, for me. Um, maybe if it hadn't, maybe if it had been done differently, maybe if it was more monitored, not giving me a full script of a, a medication that could have been beneficial, but for me, giving me a full script of a medication that I could essentially get high from was a bad idea. So what happened? I abused it. I abused it, I sold it, and went right back to my old ways of using heroin. So you abused it as in you took too much of it? I took a little too much of it, or I only took it for the effect, or I would sell it and get what I really wanted. So the street value of that, to sell it, speak to that. Uh, well, the street value is a little different um, value-wise and depending on the area. Uh, I believe to, to purchase it uh, from the pharmacy, it's around $11. Um, and you, you can go from anywhere from 20 to $30 for one strip of Suboxone. So it's pretty valuable on the street. Very valuable. Yeah. Okay. Very good. So you decided to avoid that entirely for you, for your recovery. So you're abstinence-based, your, yes. your recovery plan. Yes. Okay. Completely absolutely. So... I think it was Kelly's point out, a couple of good points. One is that it sounds like how he was prescribed the, uh, the Suboxone was not appropriate. And that's part of it. For other people, it's been a very effective treatment. I think in everybody's, what works for them is very different. And I think that's always, I think, important to know. There's, I wish there was one path or one treatment that we could recommend to everybody, but everyone's a little bit different. Because I know other people that are on Suboxone or Vivitrol and very successful. And some have actually stepped off of that. Some, I think, may need to be on it for the rest of their life, but it's being prescribed at a very minimal dose and a very um, highly regulated kind of thing. Sounds like for you, unfortunately, I'm sorry to hear, was, was not, and it just added into your addiction problem. So, Yes, I think being regulated would be the key aspect of a suboxone type of treatment, um, very regulated. So... Um 
Going back to, to Joel's group and the Mental Health and Recovery Board of Portage County, did you engage with them directly or was it always through uh, Town Hall 2? It was always through Town Hall 2. Okay. Yes. Okay, great. So the support that's provided for Town Hall 2, much of it does come from your organization, Joel. So let's speak to that a little bit and all of the organizations that you work with and support. Basically, uh, first of all, most people have not heard of the Mental Health and Recovery Board. And we have three levies, local levies, and that's how the sign talks about that. The majority of the, that money goes to Town Hall 2, Coleman Professional Services, Family Community Services, and Children's Advantage. The, the way the state has set it up, there's uh, 51 boards, and that's how money comes down from the federal government and state into local boards. Our job then is to find agencies that can actually provide the services. So like Town Hall 2, um, Kelly also mentioned Root House, that's, that is a program of Family Community Services. And that those are programs that we help fund with, uh, with the dollars that we get. So I'm not surprised that Kelly wouldn't have contact with us. Most people have never even heard of us except at levy time. Mm. So we're sort of working behind the scenes. Um, we have an 18-member community board that helps us in these uh, funding decisions with uh, whatever dollars we have. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit more, though, about the great work that you do because you do work behind the scenes. And you do have some serious challenges that you're faced with. I mean, you don't have the biggest budget. In fact, you have neighbors that have huge budgets in comparison. But you, you manage to make it go a very long way. Can you speak to that and some of the challenges on your budget? Well, as you said, first of all, Portage uh, gets a relatively small amount of money. And most of our money, probably close to 75% now, is our local levy dollars. So I can't say enough about the voters and supporters in Portage County. We've, we've had a lot of support over the years. So... Whatever dollars we get in, we always look for collaborations, ways that we can stretch our resources, um, having people like Kelly come out and do talks to other people, anything that we can we can work on together, uh, in, especially if it doesn't cost anything. So any way that we can leverage our resources and find ways to build on them, as well as we're always looking for additional dollars, whether it's through grants and, again, other collaborations with other organizations. So um, you're supporting other organizations, and you're also supporting the community members there. If community members have, a, say, a family member that is struggling with opioid addiction, they can contact your agency and get some guidance, can't they? Yes, they can. Uh, that's one of our resources that we provide is people say, I don't know where to call. So often we'll get a call sort of out of, the, out of nowhere, and then somebody will call up, and I need this particular resource for um, myself or a family member, and we can supply the numbers and where, where they can go for help. Since we don't provide the actual services there, but we clearly do fund them and we know where people can go for help. So you become a vital resource then in letting them know all of the resources that are available to them. Yes. To get absolutely. the help. Okay. Just describe how the opioid epidemic has impacted Portage County and from what you've witnessed, Joel. Back in 2011, we had five deaths, and then in 2015, we had 30 deaths. In 2016, we had 47 deaths. It has gone up every year since 2011, and unfortunately, we're I don't, I'm not sure of the exact number right now, but again, the number is high. 
So it's just people literally are dying from this epidemic. Uh, in all the years that I've been a clinician, I've never seen anything like this. Wow. And it cuts around all social, economic, Absolutely. Race, you name it. It's a lot of times people will say, oh, it's just certain people. No, it's not. Uh, you know, because we know people that are lawyers, that are doctors, uh, very high functioning uh, administrators, but they're dealing, struggling with addiction as well. Just like Kelly uh, talked about, many of them started with uh, legitimate prescription medications for pain. Yeah. And uh, we do feel there's some biological underpinnings to developing addiction. And uh, or as Kelly talked about, which I would label as a trauma growing up in a family that has alcoholism or other addiction or mental health issues. Uh, those are traumatic events uh, for children and uh, not to mention probably some genetic uh, predispositions in there as well. Sure. Kelly, back to you. I want to talk a little bit more about how you're able to pull yourself out and, and some of the keys to your success in your recovery over the last two years, nearly two years. Um, one of the biggest things was just having the resources, um, the help from Town Hall 2. Um, they referred me over to Alcoholics Anonymous, which I attend regularly today. And I just put an all-in effort into recovery, as just as I was putting an effort into my sickness when I was using. I just reversed that, that energy and put it into recovery. I no longer wanted to be the the sick person that I was being. I wasn't there for my family. I wasn't there for um, friends. I was unemployable. It, it just I, it took me to a level that I never thought it would take me. So, um, again, I just put my full effort into recovery. Uh, the twelve steps of Alcoholic Anonymous uh, saved my life. So. Um when you talk about the time that you put into your sickness, you're talking about how many times per day that you're using that type of thing? Uh, the energy that it took. It was the first thing I had to do when I woke up. Hmm. Um, and then the planning after that to survive the rest of the day. Yeah. And you would go through, you would start into or start to become dope sick within just a couple of hours. Absolutely. Right? After, after using. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, in your recovery, you've got a bunch of people that that are your uh, peers, if you will, that you've worked with, right? Yes. So tell me, uh, if, if you could, speak a little bit, Kelly, to the team that you have, you know, supporting in recovery. Well, the biggest, the biggest right now is my family, my wife, um, and my siblings. Uh, outside of that, uh, I have a great deal of Alcoholics Anonymous support, um, many, many friends, a sponsor, and um, resources such as Joel and the Mental Health Board, uh, if, if need be, I can reach to them as well. Mm. Um, but one of my biggest, biggest things that's helpful to me today is helping other people. You know, I began to sponsor uh, other people that have the same problem as me. And it just gives me an energy, a drive to just keep going. Well, I tell you, as I mentioned earlier, you spoke at the uh, the AG conference here. What was that, last spring? It was last spring, wasn't it, already? Yes. Yeah, and that was really, that was very, very powerful. Your story is really powerful. Thank you. And I commend you for you know, going out on the road and talking about it. Um, there's... Uh, 
I, I think every day you open the paper and you read about these stories of despair and loss and people, you know, the numbers increasing in terms of the lives lost. And there's not enough hope out there. And you spread hope, and that's, that's tremendous. Really yeah. great. Um, Joel, I want to hit on something that we haven't hit on uh, yet, and that is um, the challenge that you face with the lack of resources at times, such as specifically beds. Do you, do you find that in Portage County, um, we're struggling to find beds for people? You know, as you know, when you say you want to have, you want help, it's time. You're, you're ready to get help. You have to get that help right away. Otherwise, you, you lose that person. How do you deal with that? That's a struggle, and that's part of, as much as I hate to say, it comes down to money, but, but it does. And unfortunately, it also depends. Uh, it affects, depends where you live. If you live in Summit County, where actually I work, there is a lot more money, a lot more resources. I work in Portage County, um, and we have uh, many, many fewer resources. So what that means practically for people is, uh, as Kelly referred to, Broodhouse. That's a 10-bed unit for men. It is filled 100% of the time, so um, men are waiting to get in there. We also have a similar unit for women, Horizon House, that's run by Town Hall 2. Uh, that has about a dozen beds. Same, same kind of situation. We, up until recently, there was no kind of medical uh, withdrawal or some people call detox in the county. University Hospital Portage now has that. Uh, however, it's money involved. If people don't have insurance or Medicaid, they cannot access that service. Our board has been using funds to pay for detox services outside the county. We have to purchase uh, beds for uh, subacute detox over in Summit County as well as down in Stark County. So, so somebody we can serve them. It's uh, if they don't have the the money to pay for, it, we will pay for it. Outstanding. So, how would a family um, go about getting involved and getting engaged that way? Someone from Portage County that doesn't have the necessarily the resources to do that, how would they contact you and get engaged? We always recommend going through Town Hall 2 because we use okay. Town Hall 2. They have a, what would they call both a hotline 24-7. So somebody can call, they're in some sort of a crisis. But uh, we've also added what we call an, an addiction helpline. It's, it's basically the same facility, but it's also people maybe aren't um, necessarily in immediate crisis. Often it's a family member calling but they just need to know, where do I get help? Or I need a detox facility. I, I, we don't have the resources to afford it. Where do we go? And then Town Hall 2 can work with them to, to get them placed. But even then, that sometimes is a three, four-day wait, just because all the beds outside the county are also filled as well. And even psychiatric beds, we have none in Portage County. If a child or an adult needs a psychiatric bed, they have to go outside the county, and often those beds are filled as well. Um, like at North Coast, I get lists for waiting list of 25 people waiting for admission for psychiatric crises. Uh, that's a problem. That certainly is a problem. But you'll work with families and, and work through those issues. Absolutely. To, to we get we them try the to help that they need. We try to stay connected with them. And as, as you and Kelly talk about the support system, I mean, that is so crucial. That's probably the one variable. Uh, we talk about risk factors and so on. That, that's a very... That's just the opposite. That's the support factor. If somebody is connected to their family, uh, unfortunately, people often have burned some of those bridges and so on. So, but again, as professionals, like with Town Hall 2, it's like providing that support. 
and even went through relapse. As Callie said, that really is part of the illness, and we just expect it as, as professionals. We know it's going to happen. Let's prepare for it. Let's plan for it and uh, continue to support you through the relapse. Because a lot of times people give up at that point. It's like, I've relapsed. It's like, okay, you relapsed. Let's, let's keep working. Yeah. Um, when someone has made that decision that they want to go into recovery and they want to get help, um, they're really making a decision to climb a mountain there. I, I liken it to climbing Mount Everest. And so they start up and they relapse. Oftentimes, I think um, agencies will, when they decide that they want to start over again, will start from square one. But I think, Kelly, you made a really good point earlier that you still accomplish something. You built on that. So the next time around, that second time around at Town Hall 2, you were able to, well, make it this far yes, and set yourself up for the rest of your life. Yes. Can you speak to how important that is to change the paradigm and not look at relapse as failure, but look at it as one step along the way in recovery? Well, when I said relapse was unfortunately a part of the addiction process and recovery process, um, for me, um, it isn't that I didn't want to stay sober. I did want to stay sober. Somewhere along the line, I was lacking in treating myself. So, treating yourself. Can, can you explain what you mean by that? I began to lack off spiritually. I began to lack off attending meetings. I began to isolate again. Uh, old behaviors that I had during my addiction were begin beginning to come to the surface again a little bit. Um, so that's when the relapse happened. It's when I slowed down on treating my disease. Um, so I learned from it. After attending Town Hall 2 a second time, I put all of those things into, into a positive action and learned from it. So right now, out in our listening audience, somewhere there is someone who is where you were two and a half years ago, struggling with this. What advice would you give to them? Wow. Um, I would start by saying... First, just to be brave. Um, be brave and reach out to your your local county and ask for help. Um, it starts for asking for help. Um, just to be brave and know and believe that you can overcome something as, as horrible as heroin addiction. That it's very possible that many people do it. That... To not to not listen to the the heavy the heaviness of the stigma that goes with it, um, and that it's just very possible to overcome and be successful. And you're certainly a shining example of that. Thank you. Yeah. So, Joel, what final comments would you have for our listeners out there? I always come down to two words: uh, hope and cope. And basically, I, I think the hope is. A lot of times people have given up hope, and that results in them just not trying. It's like nothing's going to ever get better, uh, particularly with families, with, with children, whether they're younger children or uh, adult children. But there's always hope out there. There's, there's resources, there's things you can do. Cope really is talking about whether it's, especially with children growing up. Again, going back to my child psychology days, it was really, a lot of times for children, it's like, 
how do you cope with whether it's a trauma or something else that's going on in your life rather than reaching out to alcohol or some other kind of that kind of coping mechanism? But let's build in how do you deal with your own emotions? How do you deal with the peers? How do you deal with whatever issues, uh, your trauma that you've dealt with? So it's learning some new kinds of coping strategies rather than using substances as a coping mechanism, which I think many kids uh, and adults do as well. So, but don't lose track or faith in uh, the hope because that's that's really what it comes down to is I think people, once they lose that and they feel my life isn't going to get any better, um, that's a very serious problem because then we start getting into depression, possible suicide. So the hope's got to stay there and, and it can, especially with the supports you um and one other thing is the stigma kind of issue, as I do need to mention that, is that unfortunately we've done better with mental health stigma, but now it's the stigma against addiction, and we need to overcome that. These are all health problems, whether it's mental health or addiction. These are health problems, and uh, they impact our physical health as well. So let's, uh, let's stop, stop the stigma and start focusing on health issues and helping each other. Very good. Well, I want to thank you both for joining us today on this podcast. Really appreciate it. Okay. I appreciate the time, Greg. Okay. We've been joined today by um, Joel Mowry, who is the Executive Director of the Mental Health and Recovery Board of Portage County, as well as Kelly Hart, who is a uh, recovering addict. He's two years sober and a shining light in our community of what is possible. My name is Greg McNeil. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.